a short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Mr. Gorbachev, tickle my balls. So always sounds no. to me. No. Welcome back to the Cold War podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. Your name <clears throat> is um, Comrade Ray. Comrade Ray. Episode twenty-six mm-hmm. uh, today right. on the show. We have a very esteemed guest, Ray. Now, yes, I'm impressed. Now, well, we want to make sure he's impressed with us. And by us, I mean you, right. Ray. So have you practiced the questions this time? Have you, have you? I am the most awesome parrot you will ever buy in a pet have store. Have you, yes. are you sure that you can pronounce the words and the names correctly this Ooh. time? Don't, okay, okay, okay. No, I, I del- but I'm going to, I'm going to come close. I deliberately tried to craft these questions in a way where you didn't have any big words. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I see that. Nothing confusing. Yeah, truncated. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, don't Thank add, you. don't add lib in the middle of the questions like you did last time. Go off on a tangent and then have to go forget where you are and then have to come back. Just like I'm like this is like this is like a Woody Allen script. These questions, right? You fucking read them as they are written. No, no ad libbing. I'm not paying you to be creative. Just fucking read if the questions. If I remember correctly, the first interview went rather well, and I mm. contributed mm. a lot. This is the this is the Keenan Thompson one. Is this the one you're talking about? I guess. <laughs> Where he said George Keenan, and he went, "You mean Cannon?" Well, I went, got oh, oh, yeah, I got yeah. a name wrong. I'm talking about my questions and my insights as an American, oh, oh, yeah. the greatest country in the world, and our arrogance. You know, so you're welcome. Okay, our guest today is uh, Frederick Logval. He is a Swedish American historian, uh, born in Stockholm, I believe. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's got my old job. He's the Lawrence D. Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. And he's a professor of history in the, in the, (laughs) beat you off, beat you out, right. In the Harvard (laughs) Faculty of Arts and Sciences. So just, you know, your average professor of history at Harvard uh, holds a PhD in history from Yale University. And let's face it, who doesn't? And is a past president of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. Uh, In 2013, he won something called a Pulitzer Prize for History. Uh, for his book, Embers of War, The Fall of an Empire and the Making of America's Vietnam. And in 2009, he co-authored America's Cold War, The Politics of Insecurity with our previous guest, Campbell Craig. 
So, uh, and it's a cracking good read. It really, 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 is. really is. It's one of the three. I've had a number of people say, "What? What's? What's? If I had to read three books in the Cold War, what would you recommend?" And I recommend yeah. that. Uh, typically, the decision to drop the atomic bomb by Gar Perovitz. Mm-hmm. And either William Appleman Williams, The Tragedy of American Diplomacy, or uh, George uh, Kennan, as opposed to Keenan Thompson, uh, his book on just called American Diplomacy, I think. Well, I think I heard that Keenan Thompson has a. Uh a degree, um, you know, where they just give you one for being awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, don't get me wrong. Kind of Keenan Thompson, he can talk about the Cold War say- till the cows come home. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we're going to get Fred on uh, in a minute and we're going to have a chat uh, about uh, America's role in uh, creating the Cold War. So bear with me while I try and dial him in. Ah, Professor Logovall, this is Cameron. I'm so sorry. Are you? How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Fine, thank you. I'm glad we connected. You sound pretty good so far. When we had Campbell Craig on, he was talking to us from a bar somewhere <laughs> in the countryside. A train, so train station. You're doing better than that already. <laughs> oh, all right. We're already we're already ahead yeah. of the game then. <laughs> it's possible, you know. Um, we had some workers here at the house, and I wonder if mm, that, um, if the power, uh, if if this, if it's off somehow in this room. Well, let's let's try, let's try this. How about this? If we get, if we get cut off, try the landline again. Okay. Um, but we can try the mobile here to to see how it goes. You sound fine. I mean, you you realize, of course, okay. those workers were really. CIA KGB. agents in disguise CIA, uh, uh, bugging your mic, yeah. Well, I think, yes. Fun. They knew that we were speaking this evening. Yes. And they took action. Well, we are definitely on the watch list, but uh, I assume you are too. <laughs> All right, so we've already done a bit of an introduction, uh, Professor Fred, uh, and I'd like to start with the probably the most important question. What's your favorite Cold War joke? <laughs> Do you need to give me... You need to give me a heads up for questions no, about jokes. No, you're, you're Here a, I am, all seriousness, yeah. you know, uh, historiography and books mm-hmm. and uh, his, weighty historical questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm coming back to you on the joke. I've got one for you then. Um, so this uh, delegation from Georgia leaves Stalin's office after they've been having a meeting with him for about an hour. Just after they leave, Stalin realizes he can't find his pipe so he calls Dzhinsky to find out if anyone from the delegation took his pipe. After about 30 minutes, Stalin finds the pipe under the table, calls Dzhinsky and says, let the delegation go. Dzhinsky answers Stalin, says, well, I'm sorry, comrade Stalin, but one half of the delegation already admitted that they took your pipe <laughs> and the other half died during questioning. Ouch. Oh, that's, that's my very favorite good. I think Ray's got, it. Ray's got one too, but we'll save that up for later. 
Um, so, yeah, I, and I'll come up with one or two, I'm sure. But yes, carry oh, on. Oh, don't feel the pressure, Fred. Uh, now, we, we've we already had uh, Campbell on about a month ago, as I said, and we've already discussed... Oh, terrific. Yeah, he, he was uh, wonderful. And so we've, we've already talked about things like free security and, and the politics of insecurity. And I didn't, I didn't want to cover the same sort of ground, but feel free to, to speak about those if you feel the need. It's, it's yeah. worth going over again and again for the listeners. But um, I wanted to actually start by asking you about William Appleman Williams. I believe you, like myself, are a bit of an admirer of his. Can you... Yeah. Talk a, yeah. a little bit of, from your view about sure. uh, Bill Williams's contribution to understanding American foreign policy. Oh, I'd be happy to. Yeah, and so uh, a quick little anecdote. When I applied to graduate school, which happened to be at Yale, they had an essay that you had to write as part of the application. And the essay question was, the prompt was, which book of history do you wish you had written and why? Mm-hmm. And I selected, as a, as a greenhorn, um, coming out of undergraduate studies, I selected, selected William Appleman Williams' The Tragedy of American Diplomacy. Hmm. And, you know, I argued then, I guess what I would say to you now, which is that it's a profoundly important book, in part, or maybe in, 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 in essence, because Williams suggested that in order to understand American foreign policy, we have to look within. Prior to Williams, I think most historians had suggested that the United States was was reactive, was responding in the case of the Cold War to Soviet aggression. And Williams said, no, we actually have to look at the American domestic system. Uh, And in particular, he was interested in political economy. And I think that just changed how so many people viewed American foreign policy. And so the book, as you know, had this um, this transformative effect. I think what he misses and what Campbell and I try to do in our book, among other things, is to um, talk about domestic politics and, you know, elections and partisan, partisan wrangling in a way that I don't think interested William so much. It was much more for him about economic imperatives, um, but still uh, a great book, one that I have all of my, my graduate students certainly read. Yeah, I, I, I kind of think of this, this line of succession in some ways, the development of that line of thinking from Williams through to Kennan's later stuff, and uh, then you guys is more recently building on yeah. top of that. And um, they're, they're the three books, along with Gara Perovitz's book on the decision to drop the atomic bomb that I recommend to oh, our listeners. Yeah. Is, is a good starting point to get uh, a view of the genesis of, of the Cold War that they probably didn't get taught in high school. Um, Ray, do you want to uh, ask uh, the good professor a question and maybe just say hi? I would love to. Hello, professor. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Good to get to okay. chat with you now and also briefly a few minutes ago, and then we got cut off. <laughs> exactly, which, as usual, is Cam's fault, but we're going to let that go for now. Yeah, of course. Okay. Ray's so, so, getting so, cut off by me, yeah. I am. Yeah, you build up a tolerance after a while. But anyway, uh, let's see here. So um, in your book, America's Cold War, the politics of insecurity with obviously Campbell Craig, who was, uh, as Cam said, wonderful on the show, even though he was in a bar. But again, we can't do anything about that. We don't Um, judge. You said. 
We got. We don't judge. No, exactly. We don't judge. You suggested that the Soviets were pretty much contained by 1950, which, as Americans, certainly came as a shock to me. And I think a lot of Americans would be shocked by that kind of would be that kind of statement if they had you know, mm-hmm. if they read your book. Uh, can you explain for us the idea behind containment and what you meant by that? Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that even many many you know fellow historians. Um, were surprised, shall we say, by that, by that assertion. But I think we feel, Kamala and I feel strongly about that. I think the argument uh, was that containment, of course, came into being soon after World War II. The idea was that, um, as the name suggests, the United States had a principal role in making sure that, you know, the Soviets couldn't um, expand far beyond, certainly, um, Central and Eastern Europe. And um, Kennan, who was a key player in all of this, although I don't know that he was as instrumental as some have suggested, I think he gave a name to a policy that was already, I would argue, uh, emerging, um, nevertheless said that um, this is the policy, this is the grand strategy that the United States should adopt. Um, We see it then manifested in several ways in, in critical months in 46 and 47, absolutely fascinating months. Um, when the Cold War really begins in earnest, and Walter Lippmann writes his book that gives it its name, book called um, Cold War. And we argue in the book that the principal aim, uh, which was to, to shore up Western Europe um, and to stabilize the situation in Europe, in this struggle over Europe, which was really at the heart of the Cold War in its, in its first uh, years, had really been achieved, uh, we argue, by, certainly by 1949, uh, maybe even by late 48. Um, and as you suggested, Ray, um, it's a, if not a counterintuitive notion, it's, it's certainly not one that most historians, most readers, I think, would um, would accept. They would they would argue that it, of course, continues for decades and mm-hmm. periods of great tension. But but we think that that in 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 essence. It had succeeded by 48 or 49, and moreover, I would just add, Kennan himself, as we suggest in the book, as you know, he's, he, he's, he's a, an important figure throughout the narrative. Kennan himself, I think, believed that, that by 48 or 49, this thing was well on the way to, 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 to success. If if I can follow up, so if we've got them contained, they're not going anywhere. Obviously, they're trying to rebuild from what the Nazis had done to them. Was there any and I don't even know how realistic this is, was there any chance, okay, we've got them contained, maybe we can now mm-hmm. try to talk to them to to work things out. Look, you're not yeah. going anywhere because we can't let you. Let's be civil about this, and let's, let's at least have a dialogue, a realistic dialogue, now that we've achieved our yeah. objectives. Or is that just oh, way no, not possible? I think it's... It, no, I think it's... I think you've put it extremely well. I think that... Um, this is something I've puzzled over in some of my writings, you know, independent of Campbell. Um, and in an essay I wrote called A Critique of Containment, I wondered about this very thing. Why was it not possible? Why did so few people say that very thing? And now we're in a position, say 1949, now we're in a position to actually bargain, to actually have serious negotiations with Moscow um, uh, on outstanding issues. And it's worth noting that not only did Kennan, I think, come to that view, but Winston Churchill, 
um, argued for that this now is a time to bargain. Um, and there were others at the time. It's not simply in the context of, of hindsight, but even at the time, there were a few voices, not that many, mm-hmm. but who argued precisely along the ways, along the lines you just suggested. So I, I want to come back a little bit later on to what the Soviet ambitions uh, were at that stage, as we know of them now, since the opening up of the archives, etc. But something you said makes me want to move towards um, domestic American politics at the time. In a number of your books, um, and I'm particularly America's Cold War and also uh, Embers of War, congratulations on the Pulitzer Prize for that, by the way. Um, oh. Thank you very much. They don't have a Pulitzer Prize for history podcasting yet, but, uh, you know, we've got that one One in the bag. When they do. quite sure when they come out with it. It's already been decided when they get it. Yeah, by us, anyway. Um, Your your book suggests that the Cold War and the Vietnam War were largely the result of American politicians from both parties trying to appear tough to the electorate. Um, you mentioned at one point that yeah. Eisenhower, when he was running for president, uh, brazenly attacked Truman's weak and passive Cold War foreign policy, and that JFK and LBJ, with respect to Vietnam, were worried about looking soft on communism. Even Kennan yeah, yeah. wrote later on that uh, he believed American statesmen were more concerned for the domestic political effects of what he is saying or doing than about their actual effects on our relations with other countries. Now, again, I suspect this perspective yeah. would be shocking for a lot of Americans who yeah. tend to think that the U.S. were forced yeah. into the Cold War because of Soviet aggression. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about how this fear of looking weak played a role? Oh, I think it played a very key role. I would say with respect to both conflicts. So if we take both the Cold War and Vietnam, I would say that there were geopolitical uh, reasons for for the initial policy decision. So I don't mean to suggest, and I don't think Campbell would suggest, that it's all about the domestic politics. I think if we, in the case of the Cold War, one has to acknowledge, as we do in our book, that after World War II, there was a vacuum in post-war Europe that the two remaining powers that were left standing, if you will, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, they were bound on some level to rush to fill that vacuum. Mm. I would also say that the, that the decline of empires is important in terms of the, the breakout of the Cold War. So there are structural reasons, I think, in the system that allow this to happen. Nevertheless, um, I think from an early point in the Cold War struggle, I would say in '47, you see... I think, really powerful and, to my mind, fascinating evidence that Republicans see an opening, which is to use the soft-on-communism club um, to beat up on Democrats. They see that this is a winning strategy in domestic political terms. And it, I think, explains a great deal, and this is a theme in America's Cold War, as you know, it explains a great deal about why the conflict lasts as long as it does. I think politicians in both parties see a vested interest in in continuing uh, the struggle. And there's an interesting dynamic that takes place. Well, a couple of things happen. One is that the, the, the range of acceptable political discourse in the United States becomes narrower uh, and narrower. 
with very important implications. And I think any savvy politician who wants to to be elected and continue to be elected, to be reelected, realize that the smart political strategy is to be to the right of your uh, opponent, to be more hawkish um, than the next guy. And we argue that that's really important. And I think in the same way in Vietnam, um, as time passes, as you get into the latter part of the Eisenhower years, and as you certainly get into the, to Kennedy and Johnson, um, that those domestic political uh, imperatives and, and careerism, I guess we could say, I just think looms very large. I don't think you can understand the war in Vietnam without paying close attention to this domestic um, situation, dynamic, uh, and what both Republicans and Democrats feel they need to do. And Democrats in particular always feel vulnerable, again, to the charge that they're soft on communism. And I think that's key for both Kennedy and Johnson. As a as an outsider, a, a non-American, although for the record I have an American wife and an American son, I guess technically he's got a passport. Uh-huh. Um, it, it, it's fascinating to me, this, this dichotomy between the way that you've positioned this uh, fear on behalf of American politicians of, of appearing weak and this, the, the electorate's response to more hawkish statements during campaigning. And the way that Americans yeah. tend to perceive themselves and their country. And I know you're, you're a... Uh, non-native. You were born in Stockholm, mm-hmm. I believe. Correct. So Correct. Got, I, although I imagine you've been there quite a long time now, but you, you've got a, a, somewhat of an outsider's perspective still. I would, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Do, is there a, a strange dichotomy there between the way Americans perceive themselves as a nation of peace and this? Yeah. Sort of fear-mongering, uh, hawkish uh, rhetoric that uh, you know, I think you summed up in the book with Campbell as the politics yeah. of insecurity? Yeah. Yeah, I think that there is a, a dichotomy, um, and you put it quite well. And I'm not sure that we quite resolve it in the book. Um, you know, on the one hand, Americans, as you say, have considered themselves, you know, John Q. Citizen and Jane Q. Citizen, if you, if you were to talk with them, many of them would say during the period that we're discussing now and, and probably even still today, that we're a, peace, we're a peaceful people. Uh, we certainly don't want to, to go in and start shooting up, uh, shooting up other countries. And yet, no country has been at war more often since World War II than the United States, maybe even since World War I. Um, and so there is this, uh, this dichotomy. And I guess what, how I would explain it is that Americans, I won't say that they're uniquely vulnerable, I don't know if we want to get into the discussion of American exceptionalism, although I think there's something to it. But they're certainly vulnerable to threat mongering by their politicians. I think they're relatively parochial because it's a large country and, you know, you don't have to learn that much about the outside world. Unlike in my native Sweden, small country in Scandinavia, you, you almost are, you're, you're compelled on some level to learn much more about the world around you. But for whatever reason, I think it has resonated. The politicians have found that inflating threat uh, in the Cold War, and since you know this has continued, uh, it works. Uh, and if 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 the name of the game is to be elected and reelected and to win positions of 
of of influence as a as a as an advisor as an official then um it's been a it's time and again been a really powerful message i don't know if that be i mean you're asking a bigger question i, I think that's at least part of it um um and and answer. and and the crazy thing about this sorry ray i know i'm hogging the conversation for a second but the the, the crazy thing about that is as you point out in uh your book with campbell America is uniquely, except for maybe Australia, um, not the subject of external threats, hasn't been across its history, because I think, as you explained it, it has two very large moats, the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and weak neighbours to the north and the south. So there is this constant fear of threat from outside it's is played yeah. out in in domestic politics and yet the united states and australia australia maybe even more so because we don't even have a north and south neighbor that are attached via landmass mm-hmm. uh, have a, a historically unique position of uh, mm-hmm. security so it's i know it's it's mind-boggling did they get away yeah. with that? And perhaps no, did really, they get it, away with it because there are no actual genuine threats? If there were genuine threats, they'd need to be a little bit more circumspect about how they played them up. Yeah. No, I think I think your points are excellent. And my colleague here at, at Harvard, Steve Walt, who you might want to have on at some point, a terrific international relations scholar, as you may know. Steve has a book that he's working on now, uh, which I've read in in draft, in which he explores this more in the contemporary current day context, mm. but also with a nod to the history. And I think he reaches very much that same conclusion that it's, it's, it's a puzzle that you've got a, a country with tremendous physical security. We probably haven't seen it really since the days of the Roman Republic, really. Um, and yet, um, not with, <laughs> excuse me, notwithstanding this, you have seen, um, politicians behave in the way that they have, which, as we argue in our book, and which I also argue with respect to Vietnam, mm. has had really disastrous consequences. I think that that um, we can say now, and many people at the time said, in fact, I think Lyndon Johnson himself privately said, you know, the outcome in Vietnam doesn't really matter to me, doesn't matter to this country. Mm-hmm. Whether Vietnam falls, quote unquote, or doesn't, is really of no consequence to the national security of the United States. Mm. So people people understood this. That's the that's the thing that's just striking, and and not to mention, uh, what's the word? Hard to grasp when you think about the fact that fifty eight thousand Americans answered the call, went to Southeast Asia, and 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 died um, um, for in in, in 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 the war. Um, so. Um, it's it's a very important point that you raise. Um, I think it's still with us today. Maybe it's lessening slightly. I'm interested in the fact that, you know, somebody like Rand Paul, mm-hmm. even though his candidacy went nowhere, somebody like Rand Paul can run for the Republican nomination, argue, I think, some interesting things about what should be America's role, what's our real security situation and the, and the nature of our threats. Um and you know he can get an audience, and he can get people to 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 agree with him to an extent. That suggests that maybe there's a shift, but I'm not sure. Mm, although the current presidential campaign, where it's at, wouldn't uh, 
would uh, no, support that it it's going to it's going to shift much in the next uh, eight years anyway. Um, sorry, Ray. Uh, no, I think that's probably. <laughs> let's get back to yeah. the get back to the scripted questions, Ray. Sure. Well, actually, I just wanted to add on to that. The first part of your answer to Cam's question, I thought you were going to say, um, yes, um, everybody's doing it for political consumption, domestic consumption, so they can uh, so they can get reelected or whatever. But the the Congress has learned their lesson. The American people have learned their lesson. And we don't do that anymore. (laughs) But obviously, that's sadly not (laughs) true, even with today's. Uh, what's going on in the Middle East? I mean, um, you know, Al Qaeda or whoever, ISIS can do whatever they want. But again, America, as in the people in this country, are relatively safe from whatever actions they take unless they want to come over here. But again, we just we just feel like we have to defeat everybody, no matter where you're at, even if you don't pose a threat, a realistic threat to us as a nation. So I guess, like you said, the politicians learned a very good lesson. And I guess the American people yeah. did not. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I would say again, uh, and as a historian, I should stay away from 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 prediction. Um, right. Goodness knows we're we're not very good at it. But but I do wonder. Um, I do wonder if there isn't perhaps a change a little bit underway. And I'm 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 thinking back to um, the debate a couple of years ago about whether to intervene militarily in Syria. Um, and the British, as you may recall, basically uh, decided they could not go along. The Congress in the United States then said, wait a minute, we're not sure we want to uh, pursue this. Um, Again, I don't know how much more importance to attach to it, because I have a feeling that Obama himself privately was was very reluctant to go in with military force. But um, maybe, and it could be wishful thinking, uh, but maybe the, the Congress is beginning to say we have a role to play in all of this. We have a constitutional role that we've basically abdicated over the course mm-hmm. of the Cold War and after. Let's reassert uh, to some extent that authority that we have and have a real debate mm-hmm. uh, about uh, the issues. You can't always do it, I suppose. Cuban Missile Crisis doesn't afford the kind of deliberative process that, that you would like. But Vietnam, they had all the time in the world to right. debate fully whether to do this and despite private urgings to Johnson not to go in, they weren't willing to debate it. They weren't willing to say it publicly, publicly with, with terrible consequences. So right. um, yeah, maybe there's a change. Well, just once again, it's con- not weak. Yeah. Right, right. But we, 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 I guess we want the Congress to learn it's not weakness to discuss, to debate, to think right. out loud, to yeah. exchange ideas. It doesn't mean that you're weak and that you should be voted out of office. That just... You're trying to be practical, but anyway. So let me. I'm sorry. Let me get back to uh, to this. So um, I was thinking about the uh, Truman Doctrine of uh, 1947, and it was just so staggering to me as an American that here's this country that pretty much stays out of everybody's business. You know, General Washington tells us, you know, "Stay away from European entanglements and all this stuff." And up until World War One, we did a, I guess, roughly World War One, we did a decent job of staying out. But you know, Truman Doctrine, nineteen forty-seven, says that we will assist any nation face, facing in, internal, excuse yeah. me, internal subdivision. Or, it, it, I mean, it's just like we went from <laughs> zero to sixty, just in an amazing short yeah. amount of time. You know? Yeah, and and I think that the Truman Doctrine. You know, it just looms so important for, the, for precisely that reason. And it's why, you know, thoughtful uh, uh, observers 
people with deep international experience like Walter Lippmann, I mentioned before, like George Kennan, uh, quickly distanced themselves distance themselves from the, the scope of the Truman Doctrine. Because as you said, zero to 60, all of a sudden a kind of global commitment. Um, and even though I personally wouldn't want to draw a straight line from the Truman Doctrine in 1947 to, for example, you know, Vietnam 1965, I don't want to draw, uh, draw a straight line. There's no question that the, that the doctrine that the policy decisions that flowed from it, and of course the Korean War happens not, not too long thereafter, uh, after 47 that is, um, they have an enormous consequence, not yeah. least as we were saying earlier in domestic political terms. Well, the, I'm sorry, just a quick follow-up. The other thing I was when I was reading in your book, even the point where countries wanted to be neutral, they're like, okay, we get that you have this big global thing going on. We just want to be neutral countries, do our thing, and stay out of this. But even with the American mentality, that was not good enough. That was, uh, I don't know, almost being a friend to the enemy. America just couldn't tolerate anyone being neutral. You were with us or you were against us. I mean, it just shows the the extremism of our mentality, I guess, in the in the 1950s. Well, and yeah, it was a, it was a kind of zero sum game, and Dulles, in particular, argued to the neutrals, including my native, my my Swedes, but also mm-hmm. others. But yes, in this conflict, you really are with us or you're against us, and, neut- and neutrality is not a, a viable uh, policy to have. It goes to another point that is critical, and I think it's a kind of sub theme in. America's Cold War, and it's been something that I've thought a lot about, and that is the 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 fear, the fear of negotiations. And the, we talked a little bit about this, I think, at the at the outset. But the disinclination, administration after administration, and I think it's true of Democrats and Republicans. Obama mm-hmm. is an interesting exception, and we could come back to Obama. But until Obama the aversion that American officials have had for so long to bargaining with adversaries. It's not, it's not negotiating with the Australians or with the British or, you know, even the French that goes on. But the idea that you can actually sit down with, with adversaries uh, and have um, agreements based on mutual concessions. And I think that's the problem. The idea is that you can actually, you know, bargain with the devil with, with evil, uh, with evil powers in the international system, that's not something we can do. But again, I think it's been something that's been really important. And I think the neutrals, to come back to what you were talking about, that was one of the things they frowned upon with respect to the neutrals, is that the neutrals were talking about diplomacy and mm-hmm. the need to, 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 to engage in, in, in serious discussions with both adversaries and uh, friends and neutrals. And that Dulles and Company could not abide. Right. This this whole Truman Doctrine of uh, America assisting any nation facing internal subversion or external aggression it's it's not only a long way from the previous policy of isolationism, but mm-hmm. it it also seems to fly in the face of the Atlantic Charter, which promised countries self determination. I guess one yeah. of the things that I would yeah. scratch my head over is, well, surely the Viet Minh uh, fighting for mm-hmm. form of self-determination in, in uh, their own country fit under the 
banner of the Atlantic Charter. Uh, sure. But I guess there was a lot. And long... Ho Chi Minh, by the way, Ho Chi Minh mm. totally believed that. Right. Uh, Ho Chi Minh, mm. sorry to interrupt you, but he, no, he, uh, he, didn't, he didn't specifically reference, at least to my knowledge and my research, he didn't specifically reference the Atlantic Charter, but everything about him in, 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 in World War II and leading up to the Declaration of, of Independence well, I was, actually... was about the, oh, sorry, the essence of the, of the Atlantic Charter. Yeah. Mm. No, go ahead. No, no, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say that I was, uh, I, I really enjoyed in your book, Embers of War, uh, your discussion mm. about Ho Chi Minh and how for the longest time he was actually sort of pro-American, believed that America was oh. going to be different, they weren't going to be like yeah. the French, that they did believe in self-determination and how it, uh, he very slowly, uh, it took him a very, very long time to lose that optimistic view of the United States. Yeah, and it's a, it's just for me, you know, as somebody who is now, um, I have joint citizenship, so I'm both Swedish and uh, American, I guess now. But it's just for me, uh, as somebody who lives here now and cares deeply about this country, it's just a, a tragedy to consider the degree to which Ho, you know, starting already in the 19 teens, and then really until the end of the 1940s. In fact, you could argue he was a little slow to, to grasp what was becoming pretty obvious. But the degree to which he believed that the Americans would be there for him in the end, that the Americans would support his cause, would prevent the French from doing this, mm. I think it's, it's just really powerful. And I think you know, history would have been very, very different uh, if, uh, well, if, uh, Franklin Roosevelt had lived a little bit longer. There's a counterfactual for you. Like, do you think that yeah. he might well have kept the French from coming back in? But the point is, no question that Ho believed this of the Americans until until late. Mm. Although we, we've done quite a few episodes talking about the Atlantic Charter and uh, those early discussions between yeah. FDR and Churchill, as reported by FDR's son, Elliot. And, um yeah. There was there seemed to be these two conversations happening around that time. On one hand, Roosevelt saying to Churchill, "Well, no more empire after this," and Churchill was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" But um, <laughs> at the same time, there's a lot of back back channel communications saying, "Well, we don't mean the British and the French. You guys are going to be okay. We we mean everyone else." Anyway, um, moving on. So yeah. the Truman Doctrine was about the United States. Uh, getting involved in the world uh, where there were threats to uh, the, the, the way countries were being run. But then then a few years later, we have NSC 68, which, again, I think a lot of yeah. Americans may not be aware of. Can, can you perhaps provide a quick introduction to NSC 68 and explain yeah. how it's different from the Truman Doctrine? Uh, like it goes from, moves on from containment yeah. and actually goes to rollback. It really does. So it's it's um, it's uh, spring of 1950. I think it's important to note the, the the timing here because the periodization matters. So we it's critical for us to remember here that NSC 68 comes out of or results from, as maybe a better way of putting it, the so-called twin shocks of, of 1949, which is the Soviet detonation of a of an atomic device, mm -hmm. and it's Mao. Mao Zedong's victory in the Chinese Civil War. And I think in order to understand NSC 68, which is drafted before the Korean War begins, 
Mm. Uh, you have to understand again those those twin those huge develops, developments in, in, in forty nine. And as you were suggesting, it's a remarkable document. Stays classified for the next twenty five years, so it's only in the mid seventies that historians get their hands on it. But it it is it's really a call for rollback. It's a it's a, it's a much more ambitious. Um, undertaking than than containment. Um, in the end, you could argue that, well, they didn't really attempt to roll back, so it's in some ways a continuation of containment. But if, but if you read the document literally, it certainly calls for much more than mere containment. It involves a big increase in defense spending, uh, a much more vigilant posture uh, globally for the United States, and it becomes a kind of a blueprint, as it's all often called, for. U.S. policy then for the next, you know, couple of decades. Some yeah. if it, might argue even to this very day. Oh, I think so. In fact, that's a very good point. I think you could argue that that architecture, if that's mm. the best word, maybe it is. But what NSC 68 lays out in this blueprint, blueprint really is about a commitment to global engagement, to be able to project American power all four corners of the globe and that remains even under Barack Obama arguably hmm. um, the driving sort of policy to this day I agree it, it, NSC 68 to me sort of engineered this uh, view in terms of the bureaucracy of the government for uh, bipartisan uh, view yeah. of the the need for America to have m- enormous military superiority uh, as well as economic yeah. Superiority, and we, we've done quite a bit on economics on this series, and Bretton Woods, and and uh, the the sort of economic drivers of conflict. But um, but again, it it always boggles my mind when I think about how, in a matter of decades, two or three decades, the official view uh, of the the White House and Congress went from isolationism mm-hmm. under. Wilson and even mm-hmm. uh, you know in FDR's I think third, second or third mm-hmm. presidential campaign he was still saying no no we're not going to get involved, mm-hmm. uh, and here we are in yeah. 1950 and the policy is well actually we need to run the world we need to have the biggest yeah. damn army uh, that the world has ever yeah. seen and and it just you know the, the the differential between the United States military power and yeah. the rest of the world as we know has continued to grow ever since. It's continued to grow ever since. I would only I would only say that it's not really a, a two or three decades. I would say it's actually one decade. Right. And it just occurs to me. List. It occurs to me listening to you that there is a a great book to be written. I don't think it has been written, but a book that basically looks at a decade, precise decade, nineteen forty to nineteen fifty. And so you could begin. Somebody really should write this book. Is you that could begin right? with the fall of France. There you go. This, this is what you guys should co-author. The fall of France, I would argue, has a very important uh, effect on American strategic thinking in, the, in, the, in, in, as you know, 1940. Um, and then, as we've just said, NSC 68, precisely a decade later, um, they bookend their you, – you have a transformation. Mm. There's no question in that period, and you could probably also – go drill down further and suggest that, that there is a period of, of, of a couple of years in the middle of the, uh, of the decade when it becomes clear that the Nazis are on the ropes, but that the Soviets are looming as a, as, a, as a perceived threat. 
um, that are really important. But I, but I think forty to fifty is a, it's just a key, it's a key period, no question. If if I can add to that, so from forty five to fifty, we're able to keep uh, the Soviet Union in check, relatively inexpensively because we've got uh, the atomic bomb and they don't. And then you go from that to they get the atomic bomb to us going to NSC 68 where like, you know what, we're going to have deficits for the foreseeable future, but it's okay because it's a part of a plan. So we go from a pretty good cost saving way to keep the Soviets checked to just out and out spending. And I guess the good news is besides keeping the Soviets contained is it's going to stimulate the American economy. So win, win, but what about yeah. all those deficits that it was going to produce? Yeah. I guess it just didn't matter. Oh, there's no question. No, I don't think it, I mean, it, I, I don't think it did and it connects to something we haven't really uh, discussed or at least the perception was, that it didn't really uh, have a, a negative effect, but it does connect to this, the so-called military industrial complex. And one of the things that Campbell and I felt in writing the book was that we didn't do enough, I think necessarily, we couldn't. Mm-hmm. else could do a lot more to, to really examine this military-industrial complex, which, by the way, initially Eisenhower wanted to call the military-industrial-congressional complex. Mm-hmm. But uh, savvy, savvy domestic advisor said, you know, maybe that's not such a good idea. Mr. <laughs> so drop the congressional part of it. <laughs> but yeah. the the importance of that complex in in I think ultimately even you know driving key foreign policy decisions really shouldn't be underestimated and it's a it's a complex thing to write about. We need to understand more about the military industrial complex, mm-hmm. how it came into being, how it reached the extent that it reached. Um, it's it's hugely important, and yet we don't know that much about it. Yeah, we do. We we did have a plan to talk to you about that. I mean, we've done quite a number of episodes, um, as I mentioned earlier, on economics, and we talk about the military-industrial mm-hmm. complex. And just the, the the idea that I was trying to get across to people is just to try and get a, a grasp of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of businesses in the United States that make a lot of money out of the country going to war, uh, and that it's not just yep. the armaments suppliers. I think people tend to assume it's the armament suppliers or the Halliburtons oh. that go in there for reconstruction. It's people who sell software to the bases. It's people who sell shoes, pencils, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, exercise equipment, uh, yeah. these government contracts that the Pentagon uh, yeah. gives out to, to build and maintain bases. Yeah. Uh, is worth billions and billions every year, which is money oh, in the pockets no of business owners. They they come to rely on that revenue. And, and so if America just stopped running all of these overseas bases, all of a sudden there's probably half the economy would go into the toilet. Well, it's a very good point. And you could add to your list, you could also add labor unions. Yes. Uh, we know mm. this from the Cold War that came to see, a, a, to have again a kind of vested interest in, in, in seeing this continue. And even individual communities, especially in the West, California, and some other states, and in, in Texas, that we that became very, very dependent on this complex. The only thing that I guess one would say as a kind of counterpoint is that if you look again at the Vietnam case, which is the one that I know best, initially in 64 and 65, 
I think uh, industrial uh, leaders, leaders in, in, in industrial America, were wary of an escalation of the war. Uh, I think they were not keen on seeing a major, a major uh, new war in, in Southeast Asia, Asia for the United States. I think subsequently they came to benefit from it, many of them, especially the, the arms uh, manufacturers, uh, the military contractors. But, you know, I think it would be too simple to say that they egged on the administration or that they are behind the Vietnam War. I don't think it's true. Yeah, and, and one of the points I've tried to make is that, I'm, you know, I don't think economic interests are the sole reason. I, I think these the reasons countries go to war are far more complex than being able to say, well, it's about money or it's about oil or even it's about genuine uh, threats or, or the sense of aggression or uh, uh, some sort of... Um, Sorry, I haven't had enough coffee. It's very early in the morning here in Australia. Um, oh, that's right. You're you're in the morning now. Pre- preemptive strikes is the word I was looking for. That that, that it's usually a mixture yeah. of all of these things, and it, it's a complex soup of incentives and motivations. And that our job is yeah. to try and pick them apart, and and particularly in in the case of our show point out the ones that people may yep. not have given a lot of consideration to in the past yep. because they don't tend to get like the, the economic drivers of the military industrial complex don't get talked a lot about i think in school mm. or in the mainstream media uh it, it's something that people probably uh, haven't spent a lot of time drilling down into anyway oh i think i think you're totally right and i would just say that you're, you're absolutely correct that we have the task, as I think you put it, of picking them apart. I would just say that another way to phrase it, which I use with my students, is to say that we have an obligation as historians to construct a causal hierarchy, is the phrase I often use. Mm. In other words, I don't want my students to simply say, oh, Vietnam happened or Iraq happened for X, numbers, X number of reasons and then just leave it at that. What I want them to do is to, to order, to produce a ranked order, um, which isn't to say that there's necessarily a correct order, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I do want them to give me their sense of what they think is most important, even if we agree that monocausal history is not satisfactory history. Uh, and so that's really sort of the task. Uh, and, um, um, but I think, <laughs> excuse me, you're absolutely right in in, in describing this and in, in suggesting that the e- economic dimension of this complex is not something that a lot of Americans have thought very much about. Yeah, and we're not even told about it in high school or college, so it's hard for us to think about it um, because it gets oh, crossed okay. over. But anyway, yeah, let me let me let's uh, look at another pillar of the Cold War. Um, how realistic was the threat of the domino theory, and uh, how much of it was uh, just American? Mm-hmm. Uh, American paranoia, or just maybe the politicians using that, like we covered before, to scare everybody out of their mm-hmm. pants. Oh, it's a good question. I, I I think that it was always a kind of goofy theory when you when you really think about it, um, and mm-hmm. it became so more so over time. That said, if we go back for a minute to the twin shocks of 1949, and you you consider this from an American official's perspective. Or I would probably guess an Australian official's perspective, other other leaders as well. Uh, you know, maybe there's something to this. All of a sudden, you've doubled the number of major communist foes in an instant when Mao's uh, communists win. 
I could see why on some level they began to think this way, which, by the way, underscores an important point. Long before Eisenhower gave a name to this in a press conference mm. in, in 1954, the idea already existed. So you could see in countless documents, including British documents and French documents, not just American, a kind of domino theorizing. In other words, if country X falls, it's going to be just a matter of time before Y falls. The problem with the theory is that history doesn't work that way. And world affairs, world politics doesn't work that way. What, mm. what, you know, what happens in a given country is ultimately what's going to be the, the, what, what, what drives things much more than, you know, what might be going on in the neighboring country. And so um, there's some reason to, to, to imagine that people would agree or would believe in a domino theory, but historically it has not really been borne out. And I think it's worth saying that with respect to Vietnam, I argue in an earlier book called Choosing War, which is really more about Kennedy and Johnson and their decision-making, that by the time we get into the early 1960s, privately, U.S. officials concede that the domino theory is much too pat. Uh, I don't think they really believe in it anymore. What they believe in instead is what, uh, what, what can be called a psychological domino theory, which is namely mm. credibility. It's not so much that individual countries geographically you know, will fall one by one, it's that America's prestige and America's credibility uh, all around the world will suffer. So it's related to the domino theory, but it's not quite the same. Yeah, and this was the, the thing that bothered me all through my 20s and into my 30s, I think, when I started to get interested in history, was the idea of, well, so what with the domino theory? I mean, from an American perspective, so what if all of these countries did fall? It doesn't that fit under the banner mm -hmm. of self-determination? If they want to be communist countries and they yeah. fight it out internally, so yeah, what, no, no. what the hell does that have to do with the United States? And it took me, <laughs> it took me a decade of thinking and reading to work out my answer to yeah. that question. Well, What's, what would be your answer to that question, Fred? Well, I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's great. You were clearly a very precocious young man, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, uh, one could totally ask that question. And some people did. Uh, you can find here and there a document that says, well, let's suppose this does happen. That after we allow Ho Chi Minh to succeed in Tonkin and perhaps take all of Indochina, Suppose then that, you know, the rest of Indochina goes, as they say, and then let's suppose the Philippines goes after that. So what? There were people who said this. The answer that Johnson gave you, which was just a crazy one in a way, but it resonated. Johnson said, you know, pretty soon we're going to be fighting them in the streets of San Francisco. Uh, in other words, it will ultimately, if we allow this mm. to happen, little by little, it's going to come to our own shores. He never explained just how this was going to happen. But I think the argument was that ultimately it would actually come to the, you know, the geographic approaches of the United States. But, but even what was so, the answer that you ultimately came to? Well, but even so, so what? It doesn't, don't Americans have the right to choose communism or socialism if it comes no. to their shores? Like, isn't it a free country where they get to decide for themselves? Why would Johnson be concerned about 
Americans choosing socialism? Yeah, well, there's a still larger question. And it is interesting, again, to come back to, and Campbell and I hint at this a little bit in the books, but I don't think we do very much with it at all. But that you can have in 1948, as late as 48, you can have in the figure of Henry Wallace uh, mm. running a credible national campaign. It's true that he didn't do very well. So mm. I, we don't mean to suggest that he came anywhere close to winning. But it was a legitimate national campaign that basically posed your question in different words. You know, why can't we uh, uh, think differently about our own uh, political system? Why can't we have a full uh, agreement with the Soviet Union and so on? Um, and he could still in that that was as <laughs> excuse me as late as you could have such a campaign. Mm. It was impossible in the decades thereafter again because of this much narrower range of acceptable political discourse in the, in the country. That's not a full answer to your question. I guess I'm just maybe posing it in a different, in a different way. Well, the, 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 to answer your question before, the conclusion I came to is that the, the economic elite in the United States would have suffered badly if Americans had adopted more socialistic thoughts and practices, and they were determined mm-hmm to shut that down even as a remote possibility by any means necessary uh, through propaganda, through uh, trying to make the uh, existing socialist uh, countries uh, look as bad as possible, Uh even though some of them had a lot of bad, obviously horrible shit Uh going on under Stalin in particular, but they were determined to make them look... Mm-hmm. To, to vilify them as much as possible, uh, even if it required just making shit up, basically. Yeah, no, and I think I think that's I think that's right. I guess it does invite a, a follow up question, which is, well, okay, if 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 this is why it happened that America's uh, political and economic leaders saw the threat to themselves and to their own supremacy if they allowed this to happen. I guess one could ask the question, well, why was it so easy for them to make that, that sale? Because it would seem to me, other historians might disagree, but that they didn't have to work very hard to make that argument. And that, that labor unions, for example, and, and others who might have been in a position to say, now, wait a minute, we're not sure we agree with this, and let's duke it out at the, at the ballot box, mm-hmm. didn't really happen. Uh, as I said, you know, the Republicans and Democrats were basically hawkish all the way through here when it came to foreign policy issues, and you don't see a kind of groundswell from below of the type that you might see, for example, in my my native Sweden, where the left is, or at least was, uh, a more sort of formidable force than you see in this country. Uh, well, but that may be leading us down a different path, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd point to Edward Bernays and Walter Littman. I think they answered those questions. Yeah, no, they did. Just uh, how easy it is to manipulate people with propaganda. It doesn't take much. But, you know, it's it's a, it's a good... And I think there is something inherent in, in American idealism and exceptionalism about being different and better that, that played a role in there as well. Anyway, um, yeah. how, much, how much time do you have, Fred? Like, uh, I see we're coming up on sort of 55 minutes. And we've still got half a dozen um, questions. Well, I think... I think it, oh, you do. Well, I think my wife and I are going to have a little dinner here when we finish, which will be lovely. Um, but I, I, you can fire away for certainly a few more. This is this is fun. 
Okay, well, feel free to uh, draw a line under it when you have to go. Um, so I want to uh, let's let's um, let me skip a few questions here. Um, okay, I've I've heard you use the term permissive context to explain uh, a part of how America got involved in both Vietnam and then Iraq in two thousand and three. Can can you explain for our audience what you mean by per, the permissive context? Yeah, yeah, I I. I um I argue uh, with respect to both of those wars, Vietnam 65, let's say, and Iraq 2003, that it's not enough to say in the, in the former case, this was Johnson's war. And in the latter case, this is Bush's war. Um, that in order to understand why they happened, both of them, in my judgment, you know, calamitous, you have to look at the at the broader context. And it's really principally a domestic context, although I would, I would say that there is an international element as well. So what I argue is that you have to look at the Congress, you have to look at the press, or we could say the media, and you have to look at you know, the general public opinion. And for all three of them, in both instances, and in fact, it's quite interesting to draw, to draw connections between the two of them, you see that though there are plenty of skeptics. So if we look at Vietnam first, the Senate Democratic leadership uh, under LBJ privately uh, argued against escalation. Many moderate Republicans, and they existed in those days, many moderate Republicans also argued against an escalated war. There was a lot of uh, dissension and, and pessimism on Capitol Hill, notwithstanding the fact that the, the Gulf of Tonkin uh, uh, resolution in Congress in '64 was almost unanimous in its in in, it, in terms of the vote. Nevertheless, there is this um, uh, private skepticism, and yet the Congress goes along with Johnson's uh, uh, expansion of the war in '65, and so there is a, per- a permissive context there. Likewise, in the press. Um, uh, the press doesn't really begin to ask tough questions, certainly after American ground troops have been committed, because there's a kind of rally around the flag effect until 66 and 67. And the, the general public is basically apathetic. So there's a permission, a permissive environment there, too, in terms of what people in middle America are saying about the war. Um, they're not really all that interested just like the French populace was not all that interested before them. And I think we could talk about the same thing with respect to Iraq in 2002-2003. There's a willingness to go along with what the administration is arguing. There's a willingness on the part of the Congress almost to be, almost to be snowed, if that's the, if that's the right word, that, that Congress is, is, is not wanting to have a responsibility for a difficult policy issue and so is quite content to cede its authority to the administration and in, 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 with respect to Iraq as well mm. and so that's in essence what I'm talking about here that does have an international dimension which is that in the Vietnam case key allies a notable exception here being the Australians key allies are basically saying to the Americans don't do this you don't need to fight the Viet Cong even if you do, you probably can't win because of the weaknesses of the Saigon uh, government. But they're not really willing to make that case 
you know, overtly and publicly because their bilateral relationship with Washington is so important. So there too, mm. there's a permissive context. Mm. If if I can add to that real quick, I loved the uh, the permissive context when you got to the uh, outrageous statements uh, McCarthy was making. I mean, the press knew that he was totally wrong in his pronouncements, but they went along with it anyway. Can can you give us an idea of why they printed and and didn't really challenge him when he made these outrageous statements? Well, I think it's it's. Um... I guess it's really part of a, or it 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 flows from a, a reluctance to challenge an administration that is is arguing that there is a national security threat. There is a belief on the part of even you know responsible um, you know serious journalists that they should mm-hmm. rally around the flag, rally around the president. Um, and in this instance, and in many others, there is, uh, uh, you know, this has really serious consequences. Um, right. Again, maybe I'm being a bit of a Pollyanna, but I do wonder and perhaps hope if in the present moment in 2016, this is beginning to shift a little bit, although I don't, you know, I don't hold my breath. I think if we have a, a very serious foreign policy crisis um, we could see the same kind of phenomenon happening again, and this permissive context could um, could operate just as strongly as it did in the in those two previous cases, and and it probably didn't hurt that it sold a lot of newspapers. Sold a lot of newspapers. Uh, and yeah, that's, w- w- that's yeah. you know, and advertising on certain <laughs> cable news networks. Um, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's finish up by jumping ahead in time if we can fred and talk about the end of the cold war in early february 1990 uh there were negotiations going on between the u.s and the soviets and my understanding is that the u.s leaders made the soviets an offer and i believe this is backed up now by uh quite a few notes uh that are in the archives and there are transcripts of meetings i think mm-hmm. february 9th uh, then secretary of state james baker suggested that in exchange for cooperation on the unification of east and west germany the us would make in his words ironclad guarantees that nato would not expand 1 inch eastward Uh, A week later, Gorbachev agrees to Mm -hmm. begin Mm -hmm. reunification talks and literally almost immediately, within a few years, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, the Baltic states and others are ushered into NATO. Did the US screw Russia over in in this uh, negotiation? Well, it's a really large question and there are historians, maybe some that you've had on your your show, who will be in a better position than I am to, 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 to speak to that issue. I think that the, the capsule history that you just gave us um, is, is spot on, as far as I can tell. And, you know, it's hard. Let me just put it this way. It's hard to avoid the con- conclusion uh, that this went on, that it was a kind of screwing over. Um, I don't want to speak with, you know, great assurance on this because I'm not as familiar as some are with with some of the new revelations. And I think you're quite right about this, that we have more material now, including from German archives and other archives that really address this issue. And, um, you know, if we 
haven't come to the bottom of it in terms of an answer, I think we probably could. That's that's as best as I can do on that one. Mm. Well, I, you know, I, I find, again, Americans that I talk to don't seem to be aware of this one-inch, uh, the one-inch punch, as I like to call it, because I'm a Bruce Lee fan. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah. you know, when we look at things that uh, has been going on with Crimea and Ukraine and Putin, etc., there seems to be a, a, a degree of ignorance that Americans have, and not just Americans, people around the world when they're reading the media, uh, about well, what's been happening yeah. in the last uh, 20-odd years from a Russian perspective in terms of their cordon sanitaire, uh, the buffer zone, and we've yeah. talked a lot about this on the show, about the amount of times that Russia's been invaded uh, the devastation oh, boy. done to Russia <laughs> up and up until and including yeah. uh, the Operation Barbarossa. So, anywho, um, yeah. Well, and 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 that's and that's just to, to cycle back to where we circle back to where we started. You know, to, I, I I think about this, and I think we wrote a little bit about this in our book, Campbell and I did. But the 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 situation that Russian leaders, the Soviet leaders, found themselves in in '45, mm. their determination to make sure that that these approaches uh, were protected, um, it certainly makes sense on some level. And when you consider how difficult their landmass was to defend, um, um, mm-hmm. it has really really important implications for why, you know, as as monstrous as Stalin. Uh, was in many ways, you can see why from just a sort of realpolitik sense, mm. uh, he and his uh, colleagues were determined to try to prevent this kind of thing from happening uh, again, which then takes us to, you know, to the more recent past that you're talking about now, and you can see why those key, those moments in early 1990, in, let's say 89-90, were very consequential. Indeed. Well, listen, we'll we'll let you go. Do you mind if I wrap up, Ray? Yep. Absolutely. Thanks. Um, my, my, the last question I wanted to ask you, sir, the late George mm. Cannon, who we've mentioned many times, one of the key authors of yep. the containment strategy at the dawn of the Cold War, in his later years he wrote, it could in fact be said that the first thing we Americans need to learn to contain is, in some ways, ourselves. Would you agree? No, I, I, I think it's such a powerful statement, and I completely agree. And I think, you know, again, coming at this, somebody who, who has spent, uh, somebody who has spent, you know, 20 plus years, a quarter of a century of my life studying the Vietnam War and studying um, the reasons why that struggle happened, uh, the consequences of, of that struggle not only for 58,000 Americans, but for some 3 million Vietnamese. Um, and of course, the, the, the destruction, the geopolitical consequences. Uh, I think the power of Kennan's quote that you just gave us, um, and the need for Americans to, to understand the importance of containing themselves, uh, uh, it's just, it's just a, a, a deeply, deeply important point for me. And it speaks, by the way, it suggests that one of other Kennan's great gifts was as a wordsmith. I think he was just a marvelous writer. Um, and you see an example of it there. But, but, the, but the substantive point, I think, is, is great. Well, thank you again for coming on. Now, I should point out that in terms of our series, we're doing a linear 
historiography of the Cold War. I think we're at 20-odd episodes in and we're just getting up to the Yalta mm-hmm. Conference. Um, <laughs> we, and they're about 90-minute episodes, so uh, we like to take our time with these things. When we get up to Vietnam, uh, we would be honoured if you would yeah. come back on the show. And I understand that your, oh, your, your, your new book is on JFK. I'm writing a, a, a biography. I've, I've joined that dreaded subgenre of writer called presidential historian. <laughs> well, um, I, you know, we'd love to have you back on at some stage. It'd probably be like it's going to be five. It's going to be five years before we get to JFK. Yeah. So you've got plenty of time well, to finish the book. So take your time. Well, I would love to. I would love to do it again. It's been a pleasure tonight, gentlemen. I think we had some technical issues there, but. Uh, it so worked we'll, okay. We'll edit the, out those. That's fine. And again, we really appreciate both okay. both your time tonight and sure. the, the work that you've done on those books, which have been an invaluable resource Absolutely. to us. So thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You guys take care, and we'll um, we'll be in touch, as they say. Enjoy your dinner. All right. Ciao. Yep. Bye bye. Thanks. Well, there you go, Ray. Very charming, nice man. And again, his book. His book is very well written. It almost it almost reads like a uh, spy mystery thriller. The pace is just pretty intense, and they just keep building and building and building as a Cold War goes along. It was a very enjoyable read. I have to say that. Did you see my my Skype message to you about half an hour ago? No. It yeah. Said, said just read the fucking question. Yeah. <laughs> you did. Oh, you just ignored it. <laughs> pretty much. Nothing personal. Nothing personal. Okay. Did, was there was there any part of the book that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to tonight? Oh, there was plenty, man. Yeah. Like Okay. I mean, we just ran out of time. I wanted to talk about Stalin's objectives. Uh I wanted to talk about the fact that uh and we and we touched on this already a number of times, but according to his book Embers of War, he suggests that Kennedy, Johnson, mm-hmm. Nixon, Kissinger, and Robert McNamara all privately doubted the Vietnam War was either winnable or necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. But were concerned that their political credibility would suffer should they withdraw without victory. So on one hand, they're telling the U.S. public, it's all going to be great. We're going to win this. We're going to stick in it until we win. It'll be a disaster if we pulled out. But privately, as, as he said about Johnson, they're like, it's completely meaningless. We don't need to be there. It's got nothing to do with us. Right. But once it's they okay were in, we they were in. Yeah. But here, here's my thing. Like, like uh, the professor said, so they didn't have the balls to end it. So 58,000 men had to die. Probably double that number had to be wounded. So, and these people were not honored when they came back home. So we had to go through all that because no one had the balls to sacrifice their own career and go, you know what? If I do this, I'm not going to get reelected, but fuck it. I'm bringing our guys home. No one had the guts to do that. Mm. And here's the part I wanted to get to. When when Eisenhower was president, he said, there's no such thing as a limited nuclear war. If you if you start fighting, if I push you and you push me and I swing and you swing, suddenly it's all going to get the fuck out of hand because that's the way fights go. The same thing with nuclear wars. There's no such thing as a limited nuclear war. So if this ever happens, it's going to go big. And that's just the way it is. So he would not use nuclear. Uh, excuse me. He would not use the atomic bomb, but he certainly did, you know, scare the shit out of people with it. So he was able to get some stuff done. Whereas Kennedy comes along and 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 when you read this book, you're going to admire 
I think Eisenhower a little more than you do and Kennedy a little less than you do. But um, Kennedy is like, no, no, we can come up with some options. We can come up with some deals. I'll have a whole slew of options of dealing with people with limited war. Uh, and they just found out very quickly that they were wrong. Eisenhower was right. But again, they were in the White House. It's too late to do anything about it. And so the whole Cuban Missile Crisis, which I can't wait to get to, that was absolutely fascinating. But Eisenhower was right. You, you don't play that card because there's no such thing as just a little wow. bit of, of atomic war. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, and that's the great tragedy of the, the arms race, nuclear arms race, is on all sides, not just Eisenhower, yeah, Stalin, yeah. Khrushchev, all of these guys knew categorically we can't make a nuclear strike yeah. it, it well the only person who didn't know was macarthur in korea he was like let's nuke the <laughs> fucking <laughs> chinese right. him, him and trump yeah 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 but he wanted he wanted to go he wanted let's go let's go yeah and uh i think it was uh was it truman who was still president at that time i think so he said uh get back yeah. here you <laughs> fucking twat what the fuck what the fuck well, is no. wrong with you but even, then, even when, all these guys yeah. understood this, that after the Russians got the bomb, they couldn't they couldn't use it. It would literally be, you know, not necessarily the end of humans race on the planet, but it might as well be. And I think I, I've explained this earlier on in the series that if you go back to um, uh, von Clausewitz, mm-hmm. so for people that aren't you know, sort of 19th century history buffs. There was a, uh, I think it was a Prussian officer right. during the Napoleonic Wars, um, or as I Von should Clausewitz. refer to them technically, the wars right. against the French Revolution, because... There you go. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> Von Clausewitz, uh, later on, after Napoleon was dead and buried, wrote this book uh, about war called On War. And... Um, one of the most famous quotes of it is that war is an extension of politics by other means or diplomacy by other means. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that both the Soviets and the Americans realized during the, the, the early years of the atomic age was that there was no point having a nuclear war if everyone was dead at the end of it. You know, you're not gaining anything. War is about gaining something that you can't gain by politics or or defending something that you can't defend through diplomatic channels where diplomacy breaks down. But there's no point in doing that if a third or a half or two thirds or three quarters of your country and your population is wiped out and the other guy's population as well. That's just it's counterproductive. (laughs) <laughs> to have a war where a everybody dies. There's no upside in that. So yeah. they knew that, yeah. but they continued to escalate tensions, to build up their nuclear capacity. Like America today is still sitting, I think, on about five or 6,000 nuclear warheads, and each yeah. one of them is 100 times more powerful than the bombs they dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Like, what the? F- what's the fucking point? I mean, how many right. do you need? How many, how many how many times can you destroy a city? The answer is once. Yeah, but I mean, and even okay. So you want to take out what, how many major cities do the Soviets? If you added the Soviets and North Korea and uh, Iran and uh, and all yeah, of America's we you know, still do it. traditional enemies, yeah. what, do you, what do you? How many do you need? Like five each? There's ten, fifteen, <laughs> fifteen. That's all you need. You don't need five thousand. 
Anyway. You can have the radiation floating around. And just, just yeah. the other part was, uh, yeah, just when JFK came to power and they had the, the spy planes flying over and they said, okay, they've got about 100 active nuke, uh, atomic missiles. We've got 15,000. But no, no let, like you said, let's keep ramping up, building more because it was creating jobs and no one had the courage to, to, to take, turn to the industrial complex and go, no, we're not going to do this anymore. No one had any guts. And it's just a very sad, pathetic period uh, in world history. Well, yeah, I mean, it's complex and there are complex reasons. Yeah, and we absolutely. touched on that with Fred tonight and we'll touch on that more as to how all of that developed. But yeah, I mean, you look back on it with the benefit of hindsight, of course, and go, absolutely. what the fuck were they thinking? Exactly. Yeah. And then you watch and then when this, you do talk, it, yeah. And then you watch the second presidential debate, and you go, "Holy shit!" Like uh, by comparison, <laughs> they're brilliant. Yeah, yeah. No, it just, just again, last thing after the, the Bay of Pigs fiasco, when we set up a line with Moscow, and we have interpreters there twenty four hours a day, and we allow each other to see what the other person's doing to a certain degree. So it's like I can tell if you launch a bomb uh, missile, you can tell if I launch a missile and so just having that little bit of transparency brought all uh, brought a lot of the tension down so that was the beginning of uh, of a period where things weren't so crazy but again we kept spending the money increasing the military and fucking with everybody all over the world because no one wanted to look weak now you and i've got to get out of here we have an alexander show yes. to do Let's do you go. want to Let's finish sorry i was just like, finish with your cold war joke Oh God, it's it's really not a good one, but I certainly will. I will bring this down on a low note, like I normally do. That's kind of my <laughs> my uh, skill set. Why does the KGB always patrol in the number of three? I don't know. One right? who knows Why? how to read. Oh well, I was about to say one who knows how to read, one who knows how to write, and the last one has to keep an eye on the two dangerous intellectuals in front of him. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. That's a good one. All right, buddy. Good show. Thank you. Where's Good the, show. Where's the fucking theme music? Hold on. Where's, where's the stop button? Oh, there it is. There it is. Ta-da! An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.